We're up to the second of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam. As we mentioned at the onset, the Rambam gives us 13 principles that are undergirding all of Jewish faith. They are the baseline of what we believe. That's the framework in which we operate. And as we mentioned, the first five of them are theological, meaning that these are the five principles of what we mean when we say God and what it uh, portends to us. How do we define God and what is it, what are the consequences of, of those definitions? And the second principle, the second of 13, is the idea of what's called in Hebrew, Yichud Hashem, uh, God's oneness. Uh, I like to translate it as more of God's singularity. We'll see what that means. Uh, others translate it as God's unity. And the idea is embodied in the verse in the Torah, the most famous verse in the Torah, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, 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 Hero Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. What does it mean God is one? That is the subject of today's discussion. And this principle, the principle of God's singularity. So I want to begin by reading Maimonides, the Rambam's take on this principle. Like we said, he lists the 13 principles and gives a, a, a blurb, a paragraph or two about what that principle means. What does it mean that the God that we're talking about, the creator, sustainer of all, what does it mean that he is one? So that says the Rambam, the singularity of God may he be blessed, which is to say that we believe that he who is the cause of everything, God who is the cause of everything, is one. Now what does it mean, one? One as opposed to what? Says the Rambam, there's four things that God is not that kind of one, different kind of one. Says the Rambam, not like one out of a pair. You have a pair of shoes, you got the right shoe, it's one shoe, it's got the left shoe, it's the second shoe, it's one of two. No, that's not the definition of one. Not one of a pair. Not like one of a group, or not like one of a type. So you have a shoe, it's just the example that we're using, but a thing, but there's other things of that thing. Not one of a group or a type. And not one like one man. You have one man, it's just, just one man. There's no replica, to my knowledge, there's no other one of me even though I would love to have someone to offload half my work to. But there isn't another one of me. There's only one. But even me, I'm not a real one because, well, I have a right arm and a left arm and a right nostril and a left nostril and a right leg, thank God, and a left leg, right? I I am divisible in two parts and that kind of one is not the one we're talking about when we, we talk about God. And a fourth kind of one that God is not is a simple thing or body or entity which is numerically one but is infinitely divisible. So you say, well, okay, uh, not one person, not one uh, thing, not one type, not one of a pair, but I don't know, one atom. Just one. That's just one atom. But is it really just one? After all, there's there's that can be broken down to smaller parts. Everything that exists in our physical world is divisible because it's composed of smaller and smaller and smaller parts and it's infinitely, says the Ram, divisible. That's not what we mean when God is one. Rather, what do we mean? God, may he be blessed, is one in unity. There's a singularity. There is a oneness that has no parallel. There's no comparable thing that is one in the way that God is one. This is the second of the 13 principles and it's indicated in the verse, Shema Israel, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord's, the Lord is one. This is the most famous verse in the Torah, arguably. Uh, we say it multiple times a day. And the Ramam says, well, the first half of it, Hashem Elokeinu, the Lord is our God. Well, that's the first principle. The idea of, the idea of believing in God. This is the second principle, which is the latter half of the, this, which is the end of the verse. And that is that God, this God is one. So what does this mean? I want to kind of dig into this subject, try to explain what this means. Upon initial reflection, when we read this Rambam, it seems like he's telling us a theological principle. It's a definition of God. And it seems to imply that while everything physical is composed of parts, of components, and it's kind of like a tantalizing question. You know, we have... We discovered the idea of cells, 
It's such a small thing. You got trillions of cells in your body and it's so small that that's what you're made up of. But actually not. In each cell, there's billions of protein parts and there's all kinds of other stuff. And each one of those is divisible further and further. So you have atoms and subatomic particles, cells and electrons and neutrons and protons and quartz. And what's quartz composed of? We have no idea because we can't make magnifying glasses that make it big enough, but it's composed of something else and that does composed of something else. It's kind of a – when does it end? You know, this is made of that, which is made of that, which is made of that, which is made of that. It, nothing's one. Only God is one. He is singular. There is nothing besides him. It seems like it's a it's a – a, a very much a removed idea, the idea of, you know, God is one and there's nothing that really that we could perceive, that we could conceptualize that has a parallel. And it seems like, at least upon initial reflection, that this is a, a concept that is theological in nature and it's solely theological. However, when we dig into the subject a little bit, we find, number one, details that are relevant to us. Number two, we find a very expansive, comprehensive subject and something which is very relevant to our lives. What I want to do in trying to parse out this teaching of the Rambam, I want to kind of broaden the subject. I want to survey some of the various teachings on the subject and to try to get really a a deep insight into this second principle, what it means and what are its consequences? What does it mean God is one? And what does that actually, how do we exhibit that in our lives? A good place to start is another teaching from the Rambam. The Rambam that we're quoting presently is in his introduction to Mishnah, is in his commentary to Mishnah, in the introduction to the chapter of Sanhedrin that's called Chelek. As he lists the idea, 13 principles, and lists them one after another. The Ramam also wrote a book called The Book of Mitzvos, which is a book with 613 comments on the 613 mitzvos, listing the mitzvos. And like the Ramam does, he does it in the order of importance. He doesn't just list the mitzvos in the order they appear in the Torah, in the order of importance. So the first mitzvah is the first principle, believe in God. The second mitzvah is God is one. And there, there's some some more clues into what this idea is and a way we can maybe understand it. So he begins the same way he talks about in his commentary to Mishnah that the God, the creator, the the, the instigator of everything is one. Quotes the verse, God is one. And then he adds, this is the purpose of mitzvos. Our commandments, God tells us to do something. Why do we have that? Is so that we recognize, so that we connect with God's oneness. And he says there's many citations from the Midrash and various other sources in Jewish literature that are telling us that the goal of it all, the goal of God taking us out of Egypt, the goal of God giving us Torah, and the goal of God giving us mitzvos is so that we are impressed by this amazing idea of God's oneness. So this is obviously broadening the subject, not just an idea. Oh, what do we mean when we talk about God? Uh, an entity who is independent, who is unreliant on anything else that we, talk, we spoke about in the first principle, who is one, but it doesn't really relate to what we actually need to do. It's not a mitzvah like the, you know, it's our mitzvahs are, you know, you gotta have the mezuzah by your door and you gotta study Torah, you gotta pray. It seems to be like a different concept. Here the Ramam tells us that no, the goal of all the mitzvos is to actually understand this idea of God's oneness. That's the first clue that we get that this is a much larger subject. The second clue is at the end of his comment. Again, this is from the book of mitzvos, mitzvah number two, positive mitzvah number two, God's oneness. He he ends off, there's another name for the idea of God's singularity, of God's unity, of God's oneness. There's another name. And that is God's dominion, God's kingdom. That's a second name for this principle. The idea of God being one is synonymous with the idea of God being king. So that's the first clue. Second clue that we mentioned earlier, that the goal of mitzvos is understanding the idea of God's oneness. Now, of course, this raises questions for us. 
what does God's oneness have to do with mitzvos? Like when I sit in the sukkah on the festival of sukkahs, how is that in any way connected to the idea of God's oneness, God's singularity? What does my behavior have to do with the recognition of God being one? What does that have to do with God's kinship? Again, it's setting off alarm bells or red flags. What's the connection? One is a theological principle, definition of God, and one is what we do as mitzvahs, the, the Torah, keep the Torah. What do they have to do with each other? In addition, to maybe to compound our problem, there is a concept in Jewish philosophy called six constant mitzvahs, meaning six mitzvahs that don't have a specific time to do it. You know, you blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. You fast on Yom Kippur. You sit in the Sarkhan Shaitalulov on the festival of Sukkot. And there's times to do everything. And then we're told there's six mitzvahs that don't have a time period. They're constant at all times. Number one, to believe in God. Number two, not to believe in any foreign powers. Number three, this mitzvah, God, singularity, God is one. Number four, to love God, to fear God, and to not deviate after your hearts and your eyes. Those are the rounding out the seven constant, the, the, those are rounding out the six constant mitzvahs. What does it mean when we're told that a mitzvah is something we do constantly? If it's something that you're supposed to think about constantly, how could you think about love of God and fear of God and believe in God and not deviate after your eyes and your hearts and God's oneness and not believe in any foreign powers all at once, at all times. So maybe it means that you're going to mitzvah every time you think about it. But I like to understand the idea of the six kinds of mitzvot as mitzvot are not things that you do, but things that you become. The one thing that you are constantly is you. These mitzvot are so fundamental, you have to integrate them into your persona, into your identity, into who you are, and you are you at all times. And if you are this mitzvah, then you are this mitzvah at all times. That's what it means to be constantly involved in these mitzvot. Meaning that these are not things that you, activities that you do, behaviors that you do. These are principles that you need to integrate into who you are, and therefore you are this at all times, and that's how you fulfill these constant mitzvahs. So what this is telling us, that not only, we're like we quoted the Rambam, not only are we supposed to have a connection between this and all mitzvahs, and this is a connection between God's oneness, God's unity, God's singularity, and God's kingship, but this is something that has to actually become so fundamental that it becomes our identity. It's who we are. And it's harder for us to even understand the theological principle, much less how it relates to mitzvahs, much less how it relates to God's kingdom, and very much less as to how it becomes our identity. So I think the task is clear. What we need to do to understand what this means and then go back to fitting it in to the Rambam, both in the idea of the 13 principles and into the idea of this is reflective in every mitzvah. This is something that we become. So I want to go back to the sources, the actual source in the Torah in Deuteronomy, Devarim chapter 6, where we read the Shema. Uh, so Shema is six words. It's not uh, a very long sentence. But then there's really a paragraph that follows that we say every day. And I want to survey some of the various commentaries that talk about what does it mean God is one and just to see how they'll help us maybe broaden the subject a little bit. And then we'll actually find the uh, an essay really on the subject that will really clarify what, what we're talking about over here. So we read, Shema Yisrael Shemekan Shemechad, Hero Israel. Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then the very next verse talks about love of God, which, by the way, is one of the next of the six constant mitzvahs. So again, another connection here. You should love Hashem your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your resources. And the next verse is, is Torah study. Again, a lot of the big pillars of Jewish philosophy are here right next to each other, wrapped up together. Believe in God, God is one. Love God, Torah Put the Torah on your heart, teach them to your children, study them at all times, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you travel on the way, bind them as a sign to your 
arm and, and between your eyes, put them on your doorpost. It's something which is much more surrounding you. These principles are surrounding you at all times as a Jew. But specifically, the end of the first verse, God is one. We're kind of zoning in on what our subject is. God's oneness, God's unity. What does that mean? So Rashi, in his commentary to the Torah, tells us that what it means, this is how you read the verse. Hashem is our God. But in the future, Hashem will be one. He'll be everyone's God. Today, at this juncture, it's just us. But in the future, there'll be universality. There'll be ubiquity of this principle. It'll be one. It'll be accepted by all. That's what Rashi says, which is one of the commentaries. But again, it, it, it's showing to us that the, the idea of God being accepted, the idea of God being one, is a certain expansiveness where everyone seems to know that. Okay, that's one idea that we see. The Midrash tells us the second idea. God is one. Hashem is our God. Hashem is our God in this world. Hashem is one in next world. Again, the similar kind of structure. Rashi says it's us versus everyone. The Midrash says it's here versus there. This world versus next world. Again, a certain, a certain expansiveness of this principle. The Rashbam, he gives a very simplistic, I would say, a very, very, a very basic idea. What does it mean God is one? How many gods do we have? We have one God. We only worship one God. We don't believe in God dispensing powers to other powers that are independent of him. There's only one power. Everything else is only relative power that was accorded to them by God, so really not any independent power. The Sephardo says something interesting. He says that what it means God is one, it means that God is unique and incomparable, which is, sounds similar to what the Rambam says. The Rambam says that the, God's one, but not this kind of one, and not that kind of one, and not that kind of one, and not that, this kind of one. A one that has no parallel, that has no comparable. There's no one like it. And then he explains, the Sephardo does, that God is unique. He's not part of the finite world. He's not part of the orbitary world. He's not part of the world of angels. He's a class unto his own. He is the only entity in this other world, which is the fourth world. And then he adds, if you look at the Shema of the Torah, you look at the verse in the Shema of the Torah, there's actually two letters that are larger. Some Sidurim, some prayer books, actually have the last letter of the first word Shema and the last word of, and the last letter of the final word, Echad, the, the Ayin at the first the ayin, which is the last letter of the first word, and the dalit, which is the last letter of the last word, they are larger. They're bigger print. That's not to help uh, us uh, who have a hard time reading small print. There's a certain message a message to that. Says the Sephardim, what, what's the meaning? Why is there a large ayin and a large dalit? Well, dalit is the fourth letter of the, of the, of the Aleph Bet. Aleph Bet, Gimel, Dalit. It's coming to hint to you that God is one in the fourth world. There's four realms. There's the finite realm. There's the realm of the orbitary realm. There's the angelic realm. And there's the fourth realm. And that's that's God alone. And then the, the letter ayin. What does the word ayin mean in Hebrew? Ayin means an I. The word ayin is both a word for I and it's also a word for – it's also the it's also the letter that makes that sound. I want to say I, I mean E-Y-E, not the letter I. Says the Sephardo, why is the letter I enlarged? Well, because this is something that you have to really look with your eye. You have to really ruminate upon it. You have to dwell upon it. You have to scrutinize it. You have to kind of enlarge your eye to really understand it. Okay, another idea that is broadening the subject uh, very much. Others talk about the concept of shituf. Shituf is a Hebrew word for partnership. Which means that someone could believe in God, but also believe that God maybe has some sidekicks, some other powers, other entities that also are accorded some degree of power. And that is dispelled when we say God is one or there's only one power, only one godly power, and there's no other partners and that is a separate idea of believing this. Believe in God and believing that God is the only one to the exclusion of all the other powers. Now, this, by the way, would explain 
why these two are separated. This is a uh, somewhat of a complicated uh, subject, but there is a discussion amongst the medieval commentators as to whether or not non-Jews are obligated in both believing in God and believing in God's oneness. According to some, it is part and parcel of the same concept. God's God exists and God is one. And it's a package deal, you gotta take it all. According to others, no. For non-Jews, they just believe in God, but if they believe in Shituf, if they believe that God has some other, there's some other powers that exist, that is not a problem for non-Jews. Which, uh, it's a different subject, but I'm not an expert in Christian theology, but from what I understand, the problem, uh, the, uh, the the idolatrous component is the idea of more than one power. And again, I want to stress clearly, I, I don't know anything about it. But from what I understand, that might be germane to this subject, the idea of God's oneness. Is that obligatory to non-Jews or not? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a discussion that is uh, brought down by the ancients. But what I wanted to do in uh, just by surveying the various teachings of what I mean God is one – I think I want to. We, we can prove from this conclusively that there's a lot more at play than just a theological principle. Yeah, we believe in God. Yeah, we believe there's one, and we move on. There, there's a lot more at play. It's something which is it, all mitzvos revolve around it. It's God's kingdom. It, it really has other dimensions than a simplistic take. I want to bring this subject home by quoting a citation from Ramchal. Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, one of the most uh, prolific of the Jewish scholars that we've had in, in, in recent times. I said recent times. It's 300 years ago that he lived, still relatively recently by the retrospective of, of Jewish history. Uh, he was the author of so many books. He only lived for 39 years. Uh, yet he wrote like hundreds and hundreds of books. And some of them are absolute classics, like the Masih Sisharim that we see over here on the table. Uh, the Path of the Just, here in this printing, it's called The Way of the Upright. Uh, but it's the fundamental book of Jewish Musar, of Jewish ethics. And then he writes fundamental books of Kabbalah and fundamental books of uh, Jewish philosophy and fundamental books of, of other areas of, of Jewish life. Really remarkable and voluminous author and thinker and, and, and character. He has a book called Da'as Tevunos, which is translated as The Knowing Heart. But essentially, it's a dialogue between the intellect and the soul. And Ramchal is a very unique style. It's a, it's a style that maybe takes some uh, getting used to, I would say. It's very sharp writing. It's very succinct, very very pithy writer. And very deep and also written in a way that like you have to read it slowly because it's, it's dense and deep and, and very sharp. And he wrote with such precision that it, it was treated like an ancient work. You know, the Talmud, every word of the Talmud is, is, is filtered. It's sifted. It, it, it's pure. It, it, there's a reason why it's that word and not another word. And when people study the Rambam, for example, everyone's know, even his contemporaries would say that you have to read the Rambam as if it was written a thousand years ago. It's written with such clarity and such precision that if he says this word, but not that word, and he says this word here, that word there, it's like all connected and the way he pre- presents things and, and, and the, the categorization. Why does the Rambam include this law in this chapter? It must be that it's connected to other things in this chapter. There's a flow. There's a consistency. It's, it's written with tremendous skill. And Ramchal, even though the Ramchal comes uh, 700 years later, Ramchal is born uh, 502 years after the Rambam passes, but a very similar um, writing style, very sharp and very clear. Uh, but also uh, very talented in, in kind of conveying his messages. And one of the one of the motifs that he would use in his writing is, is to create a dialogue. Uh, he would have, a, in fact, the Masil Sasharim, the Path of the Just, something called the Way of the Upright, was initially written in a dialogue format. And the way it's printed eventually is, 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 is actually just a straight prose. But it was initially written in a dialogue between the Chacham and the Chassid, the wise one 
and the pious one. And like two friends, they haven't seen each other and they meet and one of them is the wise one and one of them is the pious one. And initially the wise one is like so dubious what the pious one is saying, what are you doing? And, and then like he gets convinced over time that in the course of their dialogue, there's a tremendous progress made where the, where the pious one is teaching the wise one about his life and his perspectives. And that was actually recently discovered. They've discovered it in a, uh, in a library in Moscow, I think. They discovered the, the initial uh, manuscript of the dialogue format of the Masil Shram of the Path of the Just of the Way of the Upright. And it's printed. I have a copy of it in my house. But anyhow, the Das Tafunos is a dialogue between the, what's called the Seichel and the Neshama, the intellect and the soul. And in chapters 38 and 36, depends, it's different um, editions have a different breakdown of the chapters. But in the mid-30s, there is a discussion about the unity, the concept of the unity of God. And the subject is introduced by presenting verses from the Torah that talk about it, Torah and, and various parts of Jewish scripture. So, for example, it quotes a verse in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, You should know, surely today, you should bring it to your heart. Hashem is God. And the heavens above, and, and the earth below, ain't owed. There's nothing else. Same kind of idea. God is one. There's, there's nothing else. It's only one. There's nothing besides the revelations of, of God's unit. And then he begins to quote many other verses in, in the prophets and the writings. You should know and you should believe I am him. There's, there's nothing else. There's no other power. There's no other savior. I am first. I am last. Besides me, there is no God. Everyone should know clearly that there's nothing besides for me. I am Hashem. There's no other ones. I am one who creates the light and, and creates the darkness, who makes peace, creates good, creates bad. I am him. There's nothing else besides for him. Again, it brings a, a assortment of prophetic teachings, uh, prophetic statements uh, that hammer home this point. God is one. God's singularity, God's unity, God's oneness is presented all over Jewish literature. God is one in that day. It's a verse from Isaiah. God will be one on that day. His name will be one. He will be one. And many, many other sources. And of course, it goes back to the original source. Hero Israel Shem is our God Hashem is one. And the intellect, that, that side of the dialogue, he says, well, this is something which is really worthy of inquiry. We should, we should look at it. We should dwell upon it. We should think about it. To try to understand what this means, to understand what it implies, what is desired by the Torah when the Torah tells us about these ideas. You should know it, but you should also bring it to your heart. It means that it's not just about knowing something, it's about actually integrating it. What is it? What is this idea of God's unity? And then he adds a disclaimer, but I tell you, this is a, is a large ocean, a broad sea, but we're going to try to swim in the sea uh, to the best of our ability. That's what he says. So he's like introducing the concept from uh, the many sources uh, talking about it. And then he adds a disclaimer. It's a big subject, but let's try to dig in as best we can. That's the proposal of the intellect. And the soul responds, isn't this so simple? It's cut and dried. Why do we need to dwell upon it so much? God's one. Simple. That teaches us that the whole of us that is he is one and sure there's no other and nothing else beside him. That's it. The subject is over. What is there to ruminate upon? So the intellect responds, yes, you're right. In a general sense, it's kind kind of simple. But still we have to kind of deepen our immersion into the subject. And he quotes another verse from chapter four of Deuteronomy. It's been clearly demonstrated to you that the Lord alone is God. There is none besides him. And then he quotes the Talmud. What does the Talmud say? How does the Talmud present the concept of God being one? Afilu ledvar shafim. Even for sorcery. Even sorcery is attributable to God's oneness. So what does that mean? It's obviously not something about definition of God. It's something sorcery. What does sorcery have to do with God's unity? So the intellect begins to elaborate. I want to go through this bit by bit because I think it's it's very fascinating 
uh, how he presents it. And he's going to demonstrate that the idea of God's singularity, the idea of Hashem Echad, is not only about his existence, but how he behaves and how we perceive his behavior. And he explains, when we say that God is one, it's not enough to believe that God is inherently one, meaning that he's inherently one and it's a necessary existence. Rather, meaning that he is the creator and there's no creator besides for him. That's not enough. Rather, we need to understand further that there is no power and there's no dominion besides for him. The world has no overseer, has no guide, and the world and the individuals and the entities and the species within that world have no guide besides for him. And he has no limitations, and there's no power that could prevent his will from being implemented. He is a, This dominion is singular and absolutely complete. It's more than just believe God's one. There's nothing else that really exists besides for him, because ultimately he's the only true existence. And again, he starts to quote the preponderance of sources to prove this point. Quotes of not verse in Deuteronomy, this is from chapter 32. See then that I, I am he, there is no God besides me. I deal death and I give life. I wound and I heal Nothing can deliver itself from my hand. All the powers coalesced in one. No one can tell God what to say and concludes the intellect. You should know that this is a very important principle of our faith as I'm going to explain further. And he explains. Someone who believes that God is one, they have to acknowledge that he is one he is the only one, and he is the unique one, who has nothing that, again, hinders, hinders him, nothing that stops him. And there's absolutely no other power in any way, shape, or form. He alone controls everything. So he explains, not only is there no other powers, rather God himself creates both good and evil. The people have a question, this is maybe the next subject that we'll try to dive into because this is the natural extension of this question. The idea of evil existing, where does that come from? Is that its own domain? No. That too is a function of God's oneness. And of course, that creates all kinds of questions for us. And that's an important subject that we're not going to ignore. But again, not only that there's no other power besides for God, he himself, this is a direct quote. I'm just quoting what the Ramchal says. He himself created both the good and the evil. And quotes the same verse in Isaiah. God forms light and creates darkness. Makes peace and creates evil. I am Hashem. I do all of this. There is nothing beneath him that has any power in the world. There's no underlings that are given any power. Meaning that there's no Sar, which is some sort of uh, angel, no power, no entity like the idolaters have thought. Moreover, a next level, that he alone oversees all his creations with, indiv- <sighs> with individual divine oversight and providence. And there is nothing in the world that is engendered that's aside from his will. Everything that happens in the world is God's will. Nothing incidentally. Nothing via the power of nature. Nothing via the power of mazal, of karma. He alone is the judge of the entire land and everything that's in it. And he alone decrees everything that happens both in the heavens above and in the earth below. And all the gradients of existence are totally controlled by God. And from the power of God's singular control... That tells us that there's, he's not being compelled in any way. There's nobody compelled God. All the rules, after all, are his rules. And they're in his hands and subject to him desiring of those wills to be in, to be in effect. And then he's going to reconcile some contradictions. So this is, these are, these are obviously much more expansive ideas that God is one, not only in existence, but in all power, all control, everything that happens is all a reflection of God's will. 
And then he's going to reconcile some important contradictions that we see in, in Jewish sources. So, for example, he says, on one hand, you see that God allows his will to be influenced by our behavior. And he quotes a verse, he quotes a Mishnah, Mishnah chapters of our fathers. It says that everything happens to us based upon the preponderance of action. So meaning if we do mitzvot, if we're righteous, well, God will be kind towards us. So our actions influence his behavior to us on one hand. So it seems like we do have a lever to influence God. On the other hand, it says sometimes God ignores our behavior. And he does good and he forgives even to people who are undeserving. Not to people who are do good, they get good. Even, even people who do bad, they still get good. And he quotes many verses to that effect. Like, for example, uh, God tells Moses in the, in the, uh, golden uh, calf story, he tells him that I will do good to whoever I, so- I choose to do good, even someone who's undeserving of it. And then he brings, again, many, many verses to this effect. The idea of God cleansing us. We don't deserve it, but God will cleanse us nonetheless. I am the one who gets rid of sin. I won't remember your iniquity. Many examples to this effect. I'm just bringing a few, but there's like 10 verses that he brings that God, even irrespective of our behavior, on his own will choose to forgive us. Not because of our behavior, because of the promise made to our forefathers, the covenant that he made. And even if we don't have any merit, when he decides he could save us because after all, he's the only power. And no one else has veto power and no one else has a way to override them. And then he continues. And then he continues. Nothing can trump him. You can't use God's laws against him. There's no way to do that. There's no way to compel him. Again, this is all included within the same rubric of God's oneness. And additionally, continues the intellect in the book of Ramchal. You have to believe, and this is similar to what we said earlier that says the Ramchal, that because God is not compelable, therefore there is no creation that can stand up and override him and to do against his will. And even to use God's rules against him, because after all, they're his rules, and they're totally subject to his will, and he could, if he so desired, to change those rules, no problem. And then he gets back to the Talmud. What does the Talmud say? God is one, there's no other powers. Even sorcery. Even sorcery. That's also a reflection of God's powers. Meaning, even if the sorcerers were delegated the degree of power, even that, which seems to be very distant from God, these are the sorcerers, they probably believe in God, yet they have powers. Maybe that too could be viewed as some sort of independent existence. The sorcerers have something on their own. No, even that, says the Talmud, is included under God's domain, God's dominion. Even those things, when he wants, he allows them to flourish. And when he doesn't want, he curtails their powers. And don't be fooled. Hey, the sorcerer's got power. He's able to do things against the will of God. Don't think that means that God can't stop it. Of course, God could but he allows it because he so chooses. Even that is included under God's domain and he alone is the only existence and the only bastion of power. Thus concludes this section in Ramchal. So when you read that, you see, okay, there's a lot more than just believe in God and God is that thing. Every aspect of our lives, everything is governed by God. There's nothing besides him. So what does that mandate? That mandates that everything that we do should be influenced by that principle. Every aspect, every element of, of law, of our lives is a reflection of God's total control and, and oversight and, and dominion. The, the Rambam's assertion that all mitzvahs stem from this point. What, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is me exhibiting God's 
oneness, the fact that every, God is everywhere. I have the free will, the free choice, again, subject to God's will. Even that is not, is not absolute, right? That's what he would say. Even our free will is not absolute, which is why we read, for example, in, in the book of Exodus, you know, Pharaoh's free will is suspended given the circumstances. That's not a problem. Free will is not absolute. We're not, it's absolute distance. Only God's at absolute existence. Our power, our choices, yes, we have free will, so long as God allows us to have free will. That too is subject to God's will. But our role in mitzvos is to in every area of, of, of life and existence, in every area where God's singularity is truthfully present for us to exhibit that with our action. What does it mean to make God king? It means to show that we're subject to him, to show reality, to show God's singularity in every area of our life. That is indeed a reflection of this principle. Every single solitary thought that we have, word that we utter, action that we do, should be governed, logically by extension, by this principle. Just like God's existence permeates the totality, so to our responsibilities extend to the totality as well. We talk about the Yetzirah. It's the force that tries to get us to not obey the will of God. Says the Talmud, it has a name. Talmud, Book of Shabbos, page 105b. The name for the Yetzirah is the foreign God. Anytime someone capitulates to the Yetzirah, to the evil inclination, doesn't do the will of God, well, in effect, they're doing the will of the foreign God. Because, like we said, God's oversight God's dominion is total. And therefore, you do the will of God in every area of life. You're great. You're great. The second you say, well, in this area, no, I'm not going to listen. In effect, that, that's tantamount almost to idolatry because you're saying that God's control does not extend here. Well, okay, what are you adopting for yourself? You're adopting for yourself, in effect, a, a foreign God. And the, the deep idea that the Ram is conveying here by connecting this to God's dominion you don't have a king. Yeah, you're a king, but on Tuesday afternoons, no. No, you're not. A king means total control. You can't have a king that one corner of the kingdom is in mutiny. You can't have that. That's an insurrection. You cannot. King is, by definition, a totalitarian. When we say God is a king, we say God is one. Those are the same things, says the Rambam, because it means that God's Control, God's oversight, is absolute. His dominion is absolute. And for us, what that means is that because his dominion is absolute, then our devotion, our commitment towards that is also absolute. And therefore, every area, all of mitzvahs, every area is to exhibit God's dominion because every area, God truly is in control and we can have an opportunity with the mitzvahs to reflect that. This is the goal of mitzvahs to exhibit God's unity in every area of life, and this is what is intended by the concept of God's kingship. So I think if you read the continuation of the verse, it becomes clear. What do we have? Hero Israel. Hashem exists. Okay. Hashem is one, which means everything. So what's the next verse? You love Hashem your God. Love Hashem your God. Well, how much? 90%, 80 50-50. With all your hearts, 100%. If God is one, necessarily that mandates that you should love God and everything. Absolute unity, absolute existence, absolute dominion demands absolute fidelity, demands absolute devotion. So it's a very natural continuation. If God is one, then you should love God. Well, how much I love God? Everything. With all your hearts, don't create, like the Talmud says, well, I love God here, but I love the foreign God here. Can't have that. God's one. You have to take take it all. With all your soul. You know, we think that there's some things that are sacrosanct, our life after all. that that that's, that's beyond. No. Says the verse, even if God takes away your life, you still love God. You still reflect the principle of singularity. Even if it means giving up your life, even if it means self-sacrifice, literally, your absolute devotion demands that. With all your resources, everything that happens to you, everything that you have, everything, 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 everything is for God. Everything is to exhibit 
the fact that God's singularity is present and therefore it demands that we reflect that in every area of our life. When we talk about six constant mitzvos, again, it's not things that you do, it's things that you become. The idea of God's oneness, God's unity, God's singularity, that means that every area of your life, you're being reflective of that principle. It's not something that you isolate. Oh, I'm going to do a mitzvah now. Okay, let me put on my mitzvah hat. Let me put on my faith hat. Let me, now, now God is present in my life. No. Just like God's control, God's dominion is, is total, is pervasive, so too, this is become a constant state of man because you have to constantly be reflective of this principle. I want to conclude with, number one, sharing a segula, which I discovered recently is a very hard word to translate. I'll try to translate as best as I could, but there's no word that really fits uh, fits in English. Uh, and also kind of trying to take this to the next step. You know, we talked about free will, right? So free will seems to be in conflict to a certain degree with the idea of God's oneness because do we have power? Does God have power? So yes, it seems like the idea is we do have power, but that power is only accorded. It's not absolute power. It's only accorded to us by God so long as he wishes to give it to us. So that's kind of the idea. But again, the Ramchal told us that everything good that happens is as a result of God. Everything bad that happens is a result of God. So if something bad happens to you, who did that? Well, God did that. Well, God's merciful, God's loving, God's kind, God's good. In fact, we established that several weeks ago. We talked about the purpose of creation. God's good, what God wanted to do good. Well, how come if God is good and God wants to do good, how come he does bad sometimes? It's a very difficult question. Once you establish God is good, God wants to do good, and then you also establish that God's control is total, it seems like you have a question. That's a very important question. It's a dilemma called uh, in uh, in uh, highfalutin circles, theodicy, a reconciliation of a good and all-powerful God with some bad things, or at least by human perception, they seem to be bad things. And we're going to delve into that subject uh, hopefully at great length and uh, to a satisfactory understanding, as best we could. But I want to conclude with a famous segula, I will translate, from Rabbi Chaim Volozhner. Rabbi Chaim Volozhner, another great uh, sage of the uh, late 18th and early 19th century. And he wrote a famous book of Jewish philosophy called Nefesh HaChaim, The Soul of Life. And in it, he, in chapter 12 of section number 3, he writes a sedula. Now, what is a sedula? Sedula is translated as like maybe an omen or a, a charm. It's more than that. Sedula means a, a tried, true, and tested way to do cool stuff. You do this, this will happen. That's a good way to describe it. And he says, uh, based upon this principle, the idea of God's oneness, he says, this is a, a, a major concept and a wonderful, splendid segula to be removed and to nullify judgment and the will of others. Someone wants to do something bad to you, there's the will of others. And do they really have their own will? Can they trump God? No, they can't. So how come they could give me a ticket? How come they make my life difficult? This is the segula. This is the magic elixir. This is the panacea. This is the way to get out of tickets and to avoid problems. What do you do? How do you prevent that other forces cannot have any control on you and should not have any impact on you whatsoever? When a person solidifies in his heart to say, after all, God, Hashem is God, and he's the only God, and there's nothing else that really exists besides him. There's no other powers. He alone is the only power in the world, and all the worlds, all the gradients of existence, all of them entirely are only reflections of God's singularity. That is the panacea. That is the solution. And you remove, you nullify in your heart a complete nullification that God is totally independent, has total control. There's no other force. There's no other power in the world. And you commit and you cleave your heart and your thoughts only to God. 
as a result of this, this segula, this is the way to solve your problems. All the other forces that seem to have control over you, all the imaginary powers will be nullified and they won't be able to impact you in any way, shape, or form. Then he quotes the, uh, uh, the Talmud. Talmud talks about, uh, the, uh, the, the brass, uh, or the copper serpent that Moshe erected. Everyone's being bitten by snakes. Well, is a snake killing you? Is God killing you? Of course, it's just God because that's the only force that happens. But you think the snake is killing you. So what does Moshe, Moshe do? Moshe hangs up the, uh, uh, the serpent, the metal serpent, and people see it and, and they're healed. Well, why are they healed? So it's a Talmud, not because, uh, th- does that serpent, uh, on the staff, does that heal someone? No, it's God heals someone. And when you look up, you remember that. You remember God and therefore you remember that the – what is a snake? The snake has no power. Only God has the power. And therefore by doing that, it's a way to kind of nullify the power of the snake over you. And similarly, any other power, if it's uh, threatening to attack you or to uh, or to, uh, to, uh, to hurt you or damage you in any way, this is your way out. This is the magic sagula dwell and ruminate on, on, on the fact that God is the only power, all the other powers of fate, and that's the way to get out of problems. I personally have used this to get out of uh, driving tickets, speeding tickets. I've also, uh, I spoke to someone uh, recently. He told me that uh, he, his, his mother is Israeli and he went to Israel and they wanted him for the army and didn't want to go to the army for three years and he had a problem, so he went to the, went down to the bureaucracy and he was dealing with this. They said, don't go back or you better get his really passport and citizenship, all kinds of legally, legal problems that he had. And he finally had this encounter and he was just dwelling upon this idea the whole time. And all, and they're like, oh, okay, here you go. Here's your stamp and boom, you're free to go. Other uh, stories, people in the Holocaust were like on trains and, uh, the conductor is going up and down inspecting everyone's papers and, Thinking about God's oneness, God's singularity, God's unity, and they just ignore him they, as if they don't see him, or they're like they see him. It's a there's the great story of the guy with the with the blank passport. This is my passport. Just shows him a blank piece of paper. Oh yeah, great. Stamps it. Moves on to the next uh, next person. Uh, many stories to this effect. Again, this is uh, legit. It's a legit source, and the the the, the principle makes sense that. All the other powers are imaginary. They're not real. Only God is the real power. In every area of life, he's the only that has control and they only have power if we think they have power. If we want to get rid of their power, we dwell in God's oneness, God's singularity, and they will evaporate. And that's a good way. That's a good school to get out of the clutches of other people's power. So this is a second principle that we see in the Rambam. Uh, again, the idea is that God's oneness is only one. There's not one of a pair, not one of a type, not one that's divisible, a, a complete different kind of one, a pervasive, complete, and total power that has all the power coalesced in one. And any other power is imaginary and only on loan from God. And therefore, you recognize that via mitzvahs, all the mitzvahs are to get this idea into our life, to, to absorb it. It should become a constant state of being. Second principle and like we said, it does raise some questions that hopefully we will pursue and we will dwell upon in our next uh, session, in our next meeting.